Good evening, Hope. Open up to the book of Ephesians, why don't you? We are going to be uh, starting tonight our six-month journey throughout this amazing and glorious epistle. I don't know if you've ever had the uh, chance to go to Arizona uh, uh, or whichever state it's in uh, and go to the Grand Canyon, uh, uh, but when I was in my teenage years, uh, our family was in it, went to America, was able to go along with my uh, uh, father, and we arrived after 12 or so hours in an RV. We got out, and it was pitch black, and we wanted to go see the Grand Canyon. I had assumed, like any of the great Australian you know, uh, uh, the big orange or the giant banana or whatever, that even after hours they would have some kind of lighting on the thing, but there wasn't, lo and behold. So there I am, I realize it's dark, we can't see anything. My brother and I proceed to have a boxing match and a bit of a wrestle, and he has me up on the, uh, 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 up on the little uh, bench type thing that you've got to sit down just near the car park. Uh, couldn't see much anyway. We, we stop wrestling, we go inside, have a sleep. We get up early to go and see the sunrise, and again, we're out there, it's dark, and I'm wondering where it's going to be and which way we should be looking. And then I realize it's everywhere. It, it's not like Mount Kutha, would you believe? Not, not, a, not a small little hill that we call a mountain, not a, not a tiny little river that we'll call a, call a canyon here in Australia. This thing is enormous, the size of, of cities upon cities. It's, it's huge. And what became really fearful to me is to realize it was right underneath me where my brother and I had just been wrestling, where he had body slammed me up onto this little bench, it was in fact, go figure these Americans, it was a fence over right in front of a precipice, just tall enough to be able to trip you. Not a stopping fence, a tripping fence. Not sure the helpfulness of that, but there we were. And here I am realizing as the sun came up, I had completely underestimated this thing. We, we'd planned to sort of go down to the bottom and back and realize that's like a week-long thing to do by expert hikers. Again, I'm thinking in Australia measures here. This was America. Uh, but then we went for a walk and I almost slipped a few times. But I just completely underestimated this, this thing called the Grand Canyon. Who could have known it would be so grand, right? Yeah, not me. But, it, but, but, but at sunrise, as that, as that sun came up, it just slowly the lighting started to filter through the beauties of the caverns and, and the beauty and the glory of this canyon just became so, so evident. If you've ever skimmed through the book of Ephesians or if you've ever heard some verses from there and used them in a debate or something like that or in your Bible reading plan for the year, you'll go there here and then. If that's you, then you're like me standing on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon looking at what is mostly dark, okay? The book of Ephesians has been called the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It's been called the Swiss Alps of the New Testament. It was John Calvin's favorite book of the Bible, which means it has to be yours, at least if you want to be a, a member here. You have to agree with Calvin on that one. It has been called the crown of St. Paul's writings by Armitage Robinson. It is called the, by William Barclay, the queen of all of the epistles, or in St. In Coleridge's words, it is the divinest composition of man. The book of Ephesians is the grand canyon of the New Testament. And in these next six months, what we want to do is stand here and walk it and camp out in it and look around it and see the glory of God's wonderful, marvelous, redemptive creation in this beautiful book called Ephesians. So open up to chapter one. Tonight we have the task of doing two measly little verses. As we introduce, we lay some foundation, and I know if you were, you were just itching to get into predestination and adoption and covenant of redemption and all of that stuff, 
you're going to have to wait till next week. We're, we're going to look at the main themes that burst through this glorious book. Read, uh, you follow with me. I'm going to read from the ESV. These are the words of the true and living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the words that Paul has written to our benefit this evening. Amen. Well, this letter, Paul is writing with no pressing heresy or, or no enormous drama or no pro problematic people to address. This is, just, this is just Paul the Apostle, free, liberated, unhinged, just able to no, not address a problem, not have to you know, cuss or cast anybody out of the church. He's just writing the pure, unadulterated gospel as it flies out of his pen from his heart. This is uh, uh, him at his best. As we remember the historical situation that places his writing, he is currently in, uh, we'll call it house arrest in Rome. He has been arrested in Jerusalem, trekked by the, the ships and uh, uh, kept an eye on by the Roman guards. And he's now sitting in Rome where he's awaiting his trial with Nero, the emperor of the known world. This is how much trouble he's been causing. And he's sitting there, he's chained uh, in some measure to a, to a Roman official, uh, but he's allowed some freedom. So he's got visitors coming in. You can, you can read this in the last few verses of Acts chapter 28. Now this is how that book closes out. He's sitting there, he's preaching to Jews who come and visit him, trying to compel them to believe in the Messiah Jesus. He's talking to Gentiles who are coming to him, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he gets a, 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 a visitor, Epaphras, and so he writes Colossians, which we preached last term. He writes Colossians back to the Colossian church church in the hands of his mate Tychicus, who's got to travel to Ephesus and then beyond to go to Colossae. And so here's Paul, he's saying, wait, 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 my favorite church, I think, uh, my, 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 my largest church, likely at that time, the most stable church, the most powerful church, the church who he spent most time with uh, in his planting endeavors, that church, he says, I'm going to write you something, you're going to take it to them, and they're just going to explode and amen with joy in the gospel. That's what the book of Ephesians is. It was likely meant to go beyond just uh, Ephesus and no doubt, of course, eventually become one of the universal epistles that is in our New Testament. But his themes uh, 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 th that we find here just encapsulate, encapsulate exactly what we've called this series, all, all that is in Christ. It's an impossible theme to, to comprehend entirely or to be able to write down and, and put a full stop on his last little Greek sentence and then say, done. I'm finished. I've, I've put down into writing everything that's in Christ. He's, he's not aiming to do that, but he's aiming to give the Ephesians a, a taste, a, an explanation, a theological treatise, a, 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 a word, a letter, so that they can read it and get a glimpse and a taste of all that is in Christ. He's going he's gonna to talk about eternity past when we were elected. He's going to talk about eternity future when we're living in the fullness of our inheritance. He's going to talk about the depths of sin and the folly of our depravity. He's going to talk about the, the new man and the new mind and the new creation in Christ. He's going to talk about humans and angels. He's going to talk about uh, uh, the spirit and, uh, and Satan. He's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles and our unity. He's going to talk about everything that is glorious in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, his humble life and his glorious bodily rule and reign from heaven. He's going to talk about individual forgiveness that each one of us need because of our personal sin 
sins, but he's also going to go beyond that and talk about the infinite cosmic reconciliation that Jesus is bringing about for all things, bringing them back to his Father. So in other words, this letter is about all that is in Christ, which is endless glory. Look at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 gives us a a clue, not a clue, but a detailed summary of what Paul did in his planting of this church. I go back to this chapter frequently when we study the epistles of Paul, uh, and not just the ones that, uh, that relate to the exact history of this chapter, because I think, and I'm, I'm convinced, that the Ephesian church should be one of the key models that we take for ministry. As a church in a pagan world, uh, preaching a glorious gospel, uh, uh, surrounded by all sorts of issues, we see Paul arrive, and he has this extended period of time to just show us how to do missions, just show us how to do gospel ministry in the New Testament age. He sets up elders, and then chapter 20, he comes back into the city, uh, well, just outside of the city, and meets with the elders there, and gives us the the most lengthy, detailed treatise about the responsibilities and the dire need and urgency of the elders over the local church. And then they get the letter to the Ephesians. They get Jesus' letter to the Ephesian church in Revelation. They get the apostle John, who uh, his church history tells us went and labored among them. And then probably from him, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Timothy goes there and receives 1st and 2nd Timothy. We just have so much by way of, by way of a, 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 a case study about how to do New Testament church in the book of Ephesus. I love what we see in Acts chapter 19. Paul's church planting method. He gets there in Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. He he gets there. He preaches in the synagogue. The Jews kick him out because he's preaching about Jesus being the Christ and they won't have any of that. And so he he wipes the dirt off his feet as it were and he goes and he he, he rents a small community hall. uh, uh, Sorry, a large community hall who belonged to Tyrannus and he rented it and for five hours in the middle of every day when they would have their their break for the day, work morning, break day, work afternoon. Here he takes his time, works in the morning as a tent maker and takes five hours a day to lecture, to debate, to teach, to do Bible studies, to explain in theological doctrinal depths and evangelistic fervor the gospel to this city. Look at what verse 10 says in Acts chapter 19. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So without, without a, a, a distance being an issue, without race or culture being an issue, everyone who was in this province of Asia was hearing about the gospel because of Paul's ministry here. This is an amazingly influential church ministry. All that the, 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 the local and especially the, the Reformed church would, would gain an ambition to be influential. We've given over the idea of, of influence and, and a platform in preaching to, to sort of the seeker-sensitive, the, 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 the cheap doctrine, the fast and, and famous type model ministry. And we've given over the idea that Jesus still wants us to leverage in as much as we can a platform to reach as many people as we can so that as much as we can, some might be saved. This is what Acts shows us in chapter 19. Paul just going at it. He's going for for, for Ephesus as as if to win the whole thing. 
What we see happen in the book of uh, Acts 19 is that then the, the black magic uh, 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 proponents, the students of that school, they largely get evangelized and saved and burn their books. And then a whole bunch of the idolaters are saved and stop buying the idols so that the idol makers lose their income. The economy is going crazy. So they come and try and throw Paul out. There's demonic activity as well. But how? We need to ask ourselves this question. How did he plant the influential, massive, stable, glorious gospel church of Ephesus? How did he do it? How did he turn the city on its head? Was it by running for office? Was it by arriving and taking a poll and seeing what people wanted and providing those needs and services for the community? No. What he did was he took a spot, stood on it, proclaimed the gospel, preached Christ, demanded repentance, held out faith as the only saving instrument between man and the holy God, decried the idols, decried the black magic, decried the, tyrann the, the tyrannical totalitarian system of the government, and he held up Jesus as king, lord, savior, prophet, priest, and the city erupted with revival. That's how we do it with the word of the Lord which increased, the, the word about Jesus, the message of God, the gospel. That's what he had in his lips, burning from his heart, and that's what birthed the Ephesian church, people who gave themselves to the understanding, the spreading of this glorious gospel. So back to, back to the book of Ephesus we go, uh, of, of, of Ephesians rather. Here, Paul has, we've seen it planted. That's, that's the church that he remembers how long he was there with them. He, he, he compelled the elders to remain faithful in Acts chapter 20. This, this what would have been a theologically robust church, one of the most stable churches in the whole world. He just writes freely and passionately about Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, about what about Jesus Christ? The atonement? Uh, the covenant, the, the trinity, uh, the kingdom, uh, the church, the spirit, the gifts. What about Jesus Christ did he write? And the answer is yes. Yeah, all of that and other things you can't think of. All that is in Christ Jesus gets a, gets a list here. <clears throat> the Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us this. In him, he's talking about Christ. In him is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is the, 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 the paramount, the, the apex of all God's work. Jesus is the reason, the end, the focus, the goal of the whole of creation. The reason we exist is because God aimed to glorify his son as savior of a great vast many of us. The reason we exist, the reason there is salvation, the reason the Bible's written, the reason the church, it's all about Jesus. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth. At this point, the commentators kind of debate a little bit and the guys who are coming up with a hip phrase for their, for their church series, they debate a little bit. Should the series be titled something about the church? Right? Ephesians. Christ's body, the church? Or should it be titled something about Jesus? Uh, Ephesians, the, the mystery of his body, or the, the fullness of Christ? Or, or what, should we, what should we title it as? And of course, on a deeper level, they argue about what was Paul's competing theme. Was it the church, which he talked so much about? Or is it Jesus that he talked so much about? And in reality, in fact, in his own fifth chapter, he tells us we are fools for even thinking that that's a valid debate. It is not that the church is Jesus. It's not that Jesus is the church. We need to distinguish 
But friends, we need to distinguish without any separation. Because Ephesians 5 tells us, doesn't it, that Jesus and the church are married. Are in the process of being betrothed. You, they are, in other words, if you want this analogy, they're of one flesh. You, you, you see one of the petals that are flowering of the church that Paul's showing to us. The, this beautiful opening up of the, the petals about the church. When you look at that, what you're going to realize is that petal has come out of the bud of Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul talks about Christ, he wants us to see as budding and opening in and through the, the petals of the church. He never, ever wants us to separate these two doctrines, the glory of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ, because they are united, they are unified, and they are so until the very end of the world. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. There will never be a time in history until our resurrection. There will never be a time in history when God says, I'm going to do some saving work now. I'm going to turn into a chapter of redemptive history that is outside of or distinct from the local church. Never. The local church is God's plan for his glory until Jesus returns. Ephesians 3, verse 21. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it odd that he, I feel like I would edit Paul there and at least put the church at the end of the sentence or at the very least put it after Jesus in the sentence. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus forever and ever and amen and, and the church is involved. No. God is in this stage of human history after his resurrection, until our resurrection, the glory that God gets is in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gets glory through his body on the earth, the church. Such an amazing theme that we're going to see unraveling, uh, that are so interwoven together throughout the book of Ephesians. Everything, I'm still making this argument, every single part of Christ's glorious cosmic reconciliation, every part of it, if you take one strand will run throughout the doctrine of the church. Let's take one, the atonement. Jesus Christ came to appease God's wrath and atone for the sin of humanity. And it's in the church, or it is called the church, the group of people who have their sin atoned for and God's wrath appeased is the church. It's only to those who are in the invisible church and in local church who bind themselves to Christ by faith that can say they have their sins forgiven. Jesus plans to save a vast multitude of sinners from humanity by them hearing the gospel message and believing it. And it's the church that is commissioned with the preaching of that message and that the people ought to be hearing that message and sharing that message and anyone that believes that message comes into our fold. Christ's purposes in and through the church. Jesus came to reunite humanity, we're going to see in Ephesians 2. Whereas it had been divided through sin, but even more so divided, in a sense, by God's own covenant, where he says, here are the Jews, my select people, and here are the unclean Gentiles. But in the church we're going to see, God brings them both back together by destroying the dividing wall. Everything that Jesus is doing in his cosmic reconciliation is seen and manifested or channeled through the local church. Jesus came to bring 
the covenant presence of God back to humanity, which we, which we lost in the, in the fall in the garden. As Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the angels kept him back, and, and then the walls of the temple kept the Israelites out, and, and all of these rules, what was been lost, Jesus Christ came back to give us, but no longer in the form of a building temple, but now in the form or in the, in the presence of himself, in the church, we're going to see in Ephesians 2, the church is the New Testament temple. So do you see, everything that God is doing through Jesus is seen in or channeled through the local church. I know that today, especially among the deconstructing Christians, or among those tempted to deconstruct, or just among those who are, who are in this kind of post-postmodern world that we're in, we want to say things like, uh, look at Christ not at the church. Or, or I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. Or, or I'm committed to, I, I, I love, I follow, I serve Jesus. I'm just not that committed to this, you know, group of people who try and control my life and have a, you know, all that. The church, not for me. That's, that's an invalid biblical principle. And on at least a personal level, if you came up to me and said, I like you, you're great. I like spending time with you. I, I want to spend more time with you. I'd, I'd love to, to do life with you as long as you promise your wife stays far away. It's her I have a real issue with. And do you know what? Just take a seat down there, Tom. Here's what I don't like. Her smile. Her th- You start listing it. You'll get maybe to the second one before you wake up in a coma, hopefully with a breathing tube. You don't get to do that. You don't go to, go, get to go up to even a, a human husband and say, I like you, despise your bride, can I get an amen? You will not be met with understandable agreeableness. How much less so would you be able to walk up to the king of kings whose bride was purchased by his own infinite blood and say, gee, your, your bride's got some issues. Hey, I'm going to stick myself out of this one now, right? Jesus wants to say to us through the Apostle Paul, as, as, sin, as, as sinful as sinners can get, as difficult as the situations can be, as, as messy as the building of this temple can get, in the church is the glory of God and Jesus Christ until the end of the age. Do not let yourself be found outside of one. Let's look at what Paul says to us here in these, in these words actual before us in our verse 1 through 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Can you go? What we're going to do is actually, rather than word by word unpack all of these words, we'll do that in a sense, but go to Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, you've got Paul giving his testimony, how he became a Christian, how he entered the ministry. He's giving that as a defense to one of the kings seeking to charge him. And he's explaining to him at that time His conversion story, his commission into the ministry, he's explaining in Acts chapter 26 about the day that he met Jesus. And and it's that day that Paul describes, which we just see the very same themes landing in the first two verses and the greeting of Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 13. Paul, the the Jewish Pharisee, the hitman, the, 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 the laundry cleaner, if you've ever watched a mafia movie, the guy sent in to off the people and clean up afterwards, the, the guy who was on the payroll of the secret police, the Jewish KGB of the, of the, of the first century, go out as a zealot uh, on fire for the Lord and kill and imprison and persecute these, these people, the Christians, the, the people of the way who are trying to tell us that the poor 
Nazarene Chippy is in fact the, uh, the king of all kings and the, the bringer in of the covenant of the, of the glory of God. Yet yeah, no thanks, kill those guys. So, so here's Paul on his horse, riding round, loving his job, is dealing with all of his trauma from his childhood through the murder of other innocents and just enjoying himself. And there he is on a, on a horse and he's click-clocking along and he's going to Damascus. And then verse 13, Acts chapter 26, verse 13, at midday, at midday, what's that? What's the brightest hour of the sun in the sky? It's midday. And he includes that little detail. He says, at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Okay, none of this, maybe it was dawn, you know, it was a simple, maybe it was a, it was a new moon, there was no, no bright moon, it was night, no, no, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the day, the sun goes into darkness because there's a bright shining in f- light in front of him that, that sends it uh, away in comparison, a, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I said, who who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Before we go any further, do you see that even this theme that we've said is so key to Ephesians, the the marriage between Christ and the church, the interwovenness of Jesus and his church, it's already present in the very first words that the risen Jesus ever uttered to Paul. The first conversation they ever had, Paul and the, and the risen Jesus, goes like this. Paul, why are you attacking me? Don't you realize that when you lay hands on the church, that when you lay hands on the gathered assembly of my believers, you are attacking with a high hand the king of all glory? Don't you realize that I am so united with them that to attack the church is to attack me? To attack my bride provocates me. And so in this very first, the first line that Jesus ever says to Paul, you can already see that 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 stayed with him. That became a theme in his mind. When I look at the church, I'm, I'm looking at Jesus on earth. When I'm looking at the body, I'm looking at the person who it's the body of, right? Uh, uh, you can't uh, defend yourself. If somebody's getting annoyed at you, why are you staring at me? When you're looking at me like that, you can't say, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at your body, all right? Whether, whether you're a young kid who likes annoying your sibling uh, or your, 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 your gym helper to Dwight or whether you're uh, a, a pervert, you can just never use that language. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at your body. Uh, that, that's a vital communion or a connection. We just understand so, it's a truism. It's just so simple. And, and here's Paul saying from, from that day onwards, what became a theme for him is the church is so intimately, intricately connected to Jesus Christ, but we can go on and look further and further into what Jesus said to Paul this day. But rise, verse 16, rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to the things in which I will appear to you. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is what is behind when Paul in Ephesians 1, verse 1, he says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Here's what he means. God chose it, he didn't ask me to fill in a ballot. 
I didn't get a choice. I didn't vote. There's no democracy. He booted me off my stallion, and there I was in the dirt. That was my call to ministry, converted and commissioned in the very same moment. That's what he said. By the will of God, not me. I didn't, I didn't dream this up, didn't put it on my, uh, my, my wish list, didn't, didn't send it to Sandra in the mail, please. I want to be an apostle. God chose him. He chose him, Paul, Saul, the killer of Christians, to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a technical term, the apostle. Uh, an apostle in the ancient world, it used to be said like this, in a, in a legal uh, court of law type of way, as an apostle is, so is the man himself. Or it could be said the other way, as the man of the apostle is the apostle. So in other words, if, if somebody sends an illegal representative proxy type manner, they send their apostle, then that apostle is, is given and anointed with and carries all of the authority that is the person who sent him. So an apostle is different from a messenger, different from a letter carrier, different from a messenger boy. An apostle is in fact a stand-in for the man himself. Anything they say in their role is accounted to the sender. Anything that they do, any deed that they sign, any whatever they do in the place of the one who sent them was legally and actually binding to the one who sent them. So when Paul says here, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he means what Jesus told him. I'm sending you to speak for me. You're going to go and be a witness to what you've seen. You're going to go and proclaim what I tell you to proclaim, do what I told you to do, and go where I told you to go. That is what he meant. And we see where he was to go in the next part. Verse 17. I'm going to deliver you from your people. That would be the Jews. Paul's people were the Jews. I'm going to deliver you from them because I know you're one of them now, but they're going to want you dead soon. I'm going to deliver you from them and from the Gentiles. They're going to hate you too. Sorry, uh, kind of a lonely road being an apostle here, Paul. I'm going to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So, so here we get the clue that Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles. It was his job, though a Jew, to be an apostle to the non-Jews. His mission field was not going to be Israel, Judea, uh, the Samaria, and the area that his own blood people had inhabited. His mission field was going to be literally everywhere else. You go to the, 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 the main highways in the empire, you just pick an exit, go there, start preaching. They'll beat you up. I'll protect you. I'll move you to the next one. You'll preach there. They'll beat you up. They'll try and kill you. I'll protect you. And so on would be his life. His job was to go to the Gentiles. A Jew, a, a Jew as Jews could get. Paul was to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And, and even in, at this point, as he's thinking in that moment, as the Lord, who you don't question because he's a blazing light and he knocked me off my horse, he could do worse, no free will here. He's saying, all right, I'm not going to argue, but surely in his mind was just the, the confliction, the, the contradiction, the, the misunderstanding of why he would then be a sent one of God to the Gentiles. And yet this would be a, a key theme of his preaching and his ministry and no doubt his letters, including this glorious letter of Ephesians. One of the main themes we'll see is how Jews and Gentiles are united in Jesus Christ because of the blood of his atonement. Going on, he says, uh, uh, Jesus says to Paul in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those 
who are sanctified by faith in me. What a glorious way to encapsulate a ministry. The apostolic mission was to turn the Gentiles from Satan in their idolatry, from Satan in their black magic, from Satan in their state worship, from Satan in whichever way they're living, which is other than faith in Christ, any way you live. Maybe you were, you were a Satanist, maybe, but probably you weren't. They're a pretty small minority. Maybe before you were a Christian, you wouldn't have called yourself a, a Satan follower under his sway, a, a satanic type gal or guy, but here's Jesus himself saying, you're either for me or against me. <laughs> There's only two teams in this whole thing, and if you're not a Christian, you are under the power, the influence, the lies, the bondage of Satan. And salvation needs to come to turn you from Satan to God, your creator, back to the one who made you. He needs to turn you from darkness of ignorance, darkness of sin, darkness of evil actions. He needs to turn you from that and bring you into the glorious, beautiful light of the gospel, of intimate union with the God who made you, with truth and with righteousness and with love bound up together by his Holy Spirit. All of those things will be bound up and shown to us and explained in the letter of the Ephesians. Here's the, the apostolic mission was turn the Gentiles from Satan to God. The apostolic message was the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus. This was Paul's one note that he played, if there was ever one. This is what he said, I, I, I desire to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Some people want wise rhetoric. Other people want powerful displays. You know what I give you? Every day, staple meal, no change. Three times a day if you'll let me do it. Jesus Christ and him on the cross, reconciling sinners to God, resurrected, ruined forever. That's all Paul has to preach is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. That is the key message. Friends, if you have not come to, t come to terms with that message, if you try and think about your new relationship with God in, in any kind of other way that is mainly defined by anything else other than you being guilty before God, Him being right and just to send you to hell, but in His mercy and grace, He sent His Son, that His Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sins and then rose again to eternal life so that what happens to you? The point of the gospel, the message of Paul and the gospel preachers even today is that you can have your sins forgiven. That's the central way to think about it. The mission was to turn people from Satan to God. There's no way you can do that without the message of the gospel. Not a 12-step not a program, not an AA's meeting, not therapy, not psychology, not more drugs called medicines, not, not any of those things. Not, not, not a program, not a, not, not a, not a drive or a, or a fundraising matter. None of that stuff can deliver people bound to Satan to God. The only thing that does is the spoken message believed by faith. That is what delivers people from Satan to God. So the mission, turn them to God. The message, forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And what becomes of the believers is what we then see in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It could otherwise be translated this, the, the holy ones or the sanctified. That's what saints mean. It's not an old-fashioned righteous person who died and then Mary sent back down to do some miracles and appeared to somebody in a potato or in a toast or in a spilt paint can. That's not what a saint means, all right? And Pope Francis doesn't have to tick off their name. You're a saint if you're made holy to Jesus Christ. If God has made you, cleansed you of your sin, 
brought you into his own purposes and will, you're holy. You're sanctified. You're a saint. So Ephesians 1, the second half of it, could be translated as this. Those who are sanctified with their faith. It says the faithful. It could mean the trustworthy ones. Probably it means those who have faith who are in Christ Jesus. Those, those who are sanctified, those who have faith in Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus says to Paul when he sees him on his horse. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes, turning from darkness to light and from Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctification by faith in Jesus. That's how he, that's how he looks. I, I think that as he's writing this, the, the day that he saw Jesus commissioning him is just burned into his memory, uh, burned into his eyeballs, mind the pun. It's so clearly bleeding out of his pen as he looks at the Ephesian church with his mind's eye. He sees Jesus and his bride. He sees sanctified people cleansed of their sin. He sees people who have faith in Jesus. He sees people, and this is the next part in verse 2, who have Jesus as their Lord and God as their Father. This is, one, this is the next uh, uh, taste of the glorious things we're going to see all throughout this book, is that in Christ and by faith in Christ, what you have is sanctification, forgiveness of sins, the Spirit, everything else we've been touching on. But how Paul starts here, he says, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when you have faith in Christ, you're sanctified positionally. Theologically, what we mean by that is, is in God's courtroom, as he looks to you, even if you're still struggling with sin and, and laboring to put it to death, but you're still technically a sinner, God can still look at you and say you are sanctified because you have been brought from the status of drenched in sin to drenched in his blood. Owing of your sin to not owing anything for your sin. You are, you are holy. You're set apart to his own purposes for his use and he'll make you more holy as you live. Again, we'll look at this further on in the book of Ephesians. By faith, we are sanctified. We have his grace and peace which makes Jesus our Lord and God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel does to you. It takes you as a rebel, a miserable sinner, somebody opposed to God, opposed to his law and opposed to his ways. He takes you from the power of Satan to God, from the, from the darkness into the light and sits you at the feet of Jesus and says to you, Jesus is now your Lord. Jesus doesn't become your Lord. You obey him a bit and then you get saved. First of all, he saves you, forgives you, sanctifies you, brings you to Jesus and now Jesus is your Lord, which means he owns you. You don't own yourself. He controls your life by his laws. He has the, 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 the ruling authority over everything you do in mind, thought, uh, speech, and behavior. It means also that he loves you and he will protect you. He's your defender. He's your master, protector, your God. That's what, that's what Jesus being our Lord means, and we receive that in the gospel. But furthermore, we have God as our Father. This, this cannot be said of anybody outside of Jesus. God is not your covenantal family father. He's your, he's your enemy, which is why he says that you need peace from God. You need God to establish relationally something between you that deals with the enmity and the hate. You hated him and he hated sinners. But in Jesus Christ, who by his blood has purchased peace, 
God can now publish peace. He says, you and I can put down the arms. I won't be your enemy who sends you to hell. You won't be a rebel that strikes against me. You can instead have peace between us and I can be your father. Instead of being a judge with a gavel, I'm a, I'm a father with an open door, with, with bringing you into the family because I look at you and I see my son. I look at my son and I see you. We become, we become unified to Jesus Christ. He becomes our Lord. God becomes our Father. We receive grace and peace. And all of this is, is the message that was given to Paul to publish to the Ephesian church and to everybody. And it all hinges on faith. Have you not gone to church, not attended church, not been at a great church, not, not have you given enough, have you prayed enough? None of those questions. Not, not have you not slept with your, your partner before marriage or have you not hurt people or have you not had an abortion or have you, have you not been judgmental or have you not been too religious? None of those questions are being asked. Rather than what is being asked of you, Jesus is offering something free to you. Have you believed in the good news proclamation from heaven through Paul, through me, through these pages, have you believed that in Jesus there is enough righteousness to get even you to heaven? In his death, there is enough atonement to wash even you clean of your sin. In the Father, there is enough grace and love being issued to forgive even me of all of my sins. That is the one most important part that is the one most important thing about you. And that's the, that's the central message of Paul. That's the central message of the book of Ephesians. That's the central message of this church because it's the simple, singular reason that the world still exists. It's because sinners are yet to be reconciled to God through that message. So believe it, be saved, and let's pray a blessing. Father God, we bless you and we praise you. Because by your marvelous hand and by your marvelous will and your gracious heart, you have, you have issued a plan and brought it to fulfillment in Jesus Christ that sinners can be forgiven and sanctified from our sin by faith in Jesus. We thank you, God, for the reality in history that you have entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. You have discharged our payment for our sin. You have produced a righteousness that becomes ours. You have, you have resurrected our Savior from the dead. And now, because of those truths, we can simply believe it. We can rest on it. We can leap into that saving life raft and we can be saved. Father God, we thank you for the reality here. We thank you for, for what you gave through Paul, through his sufferings, through his writings, through his preachings, so that we can have a clearer insight into this beautiful, glorious mystery that is the gospel. And I do pray, Lord God, that it would become so much more than just a, a textual study, but it would become a, a, a spiritual, intimate, personal, life-changing understanding of the gospel as we go into these pages. Father God, there are, there are some who are unsaved in our midst tonight, and, and we do not want them to have a, an increased understanding of the book or of the writer or of the, the people or of the truth in it without coming to a saving faith. Father God, please give to them in this moment an assurance that despite their worst sin, Jesus can forgive them. That despite their worst acts of rebellion against you, you are always willing to publish peace and forgiveness to them. Father God, would you please give your Holy Spirit so that they can, they can be brought into the, 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 the church, that they can be saved by faith in Jesus. And would you glorify him in our midst, in the church, for all generations, forever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen.
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.